15th, a week from this Sunday, uh, after services, 2 o'clock at the Hope Therapy right across the parking lot. They have changing uh, rooms in there. If you'd like to be baptized, just let me or Pastor John know so uh, we can kind of know how many are going to be baptized. So looking forward to that. If you got any questions on baptism, please uh, let me know or talk to Pastor John. We'll be happy to answer any of those questions. And finally, church directory. If you'd like to be in the church directory, uh, you can fill out that form and drop it in the little box there for directories. That directory is for ministry purposes, for us to be able to get a hold of each other, pray for each other, minister to each other. Uh, so if you would like to be in a directory, please fill that out, and we'll be doing that through the month of October. So, Father, we ask that you bless this time in the teaching of your word. Thankful that we can be here. I thank you for all the kids that are here. As I see the, the, the children's ministry room full, I see the youth, uh, so many of them going upstairs, and I'm thankful for that. And I am very thankful for parents and grandparents and uh, uncles and aunts that are bringing the young people uh, here on Wednesday night having it be a priority and uh, of importance in their spiritual lives, to be with the, the believers, to, to come along us, alongside moms and dads and grandmas and grandparents, to encourage them in the Word of God. And so, Lord, I pray that that would take place in those rooms. And they are treasures, and the treasures that fill these rooms are important to you. And Lord, in this place here, may we be attentive. Help us to remember to turn ringers off our phones. We want to be seated in our seats. We want to be attentive. And that can be hard on Wednesday night, Lord, because it's been a long day for a lot of us. Some have come in from work. And so, Lord, I pray that the Word of God would keep us awake and that we would be attentive to the things that you want to show us. May it bring comfort, instruction. May it just uh, declare your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you recall that last week, if you were with us, going through the Psalms here, that we're in book number three. Now, book number three, which started in Psalm 73, goes through Psalm 89, that there's a lot of those Psalms, most of them, that deal with one, one way or another with the temple. And it's interesting that there's five books in the book of Psalms. In the f- book number one, we see that it correlates with the book of Genesis as uh, those Psalms that uh, David pens. Talks about the creation. The heavens declare your glory, O Lord, Psalm 19. And, and other references to God's uh, magnificent creation. And of course, Genesis talks about uh, how God created the heavens and the earth. And then in book number two, uh, it correlates with the book of Exodus as David pens a lot of those Psalms talking about how uh, crying out to God, deliver me, Lord, from the difficulties that he went through, being pursued by Saul in the wilderness, and then later on in his life being pursued by his son Absalom, who tried to take the throne away from him. And David's just crying out to the Lord, Lord, deliver me from these evil men and the plots and the schemes that they have. And so, of course, the book of Exodus talks about the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now in book three, as it correlates with the book of Leviticus, 
we know that Leviticus speaks about a lot about the tabernacle and the priests that served in the tabernacle. And we see these psalms being penned by uh, Asaph and by uh, the others that uh, they are talking about the temple. They're talking about uh, the tabernacle and the importance of it and what happened to it. And again, historically, we're going to talk more about Solomon's temple here and what happened to the temple uh, during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and also what happened earlier when the Assyrians came down. And, and keep in mind, when we look at that term temple in the scriptures, there's four temples that are talked about in the scriptures. Uh, Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians that we're going to talk about here in Psalm 77. Then there was the second temple after the Babylonian captivity that it was built by Zerubbabel, expanded by Herod the Great, and that was standing during the time of Jesus' ministry, and that would be destroyed, that second temple in 70 AD, by the Romans who came in to Jerusalem. Jerusalem once again destroyed, and that temple was destroyed to where not one stone was left upon another. Third temple spoken of in the scriptures is the tribulation temple that is yet to be built. It will stand for a short time during the tribulation period where the Antichrist will go in during that time and desecrate that temple. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he will go into the temple of God. He will then proclaim himself God to be worshipped as God. That temple will be destroyed when Jesus comes back in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then the fourth temple is the Millennium Temple, again, which is yet future, and that's going to be a magnificent temple when Jesus comes to rule and reign on this earth. So in Psalm 77, it is uh, a comparison to Psalm 74. And last week, if you're with us, the psalmist in Psalm 74 is talking about the time when the temple would be destroyed. The Babylonians, as you know, they came in in 605 B.C., three waves of sieges against Jerusalem. They came in and they took Daniel away and his three friends off into captivity to Babylon. And then another wave of, of, of taking captives away from, uh, from Judah was in 597 B.C., and that's when Ezekiel was taken off. But then the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Even though Jeremiah had come along and warned them specifically, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you submit to him, everything's going to be okay. But if you rebel, it's going to be death and devastation and destruction. And we see that very clearly in the book of Jeremiah. But Zedekiah decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar the third time comes in and wipes out Jerusalem, destroys Solomon's temple, that's in 586 B.C., and that's what the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 74 as we read that they have set fire to your sanctuary in verse 7. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to its ground, and they said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. So that happened at that time, a very, uh, very terrible time in their history. We also know, as we looked at Psalm 75 and 76 last week, that it talked about another threat against the temple, 
uh, about 120 years earlier. And that's when the Assyrians, who had taken the ten northern tribes, the house of Israel, off into captivity. And they made their way southward, and they surrounded Jerusalem. And as, as they came up to Jerusalem, uh, it was the king of Assyria that threatened Hezekiah, this godly king, that you surrender. Your God cannot help you. Uh, your God is not going to save you. Quit telling the people that. No other gods from the other nations have stopped the mighty Assyrians, and neither will your God. Who is this God that you're putting your trust in and telling the people to put your trust in? Well, Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, found out because one night as they were getting ready to destroy Jerusalem, there was an angel that was dispatched from heaven and came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And so we saw those psalms talking about God's deliverance uh, of that time. But now we go to Psalm 77 that talks once again about, as a comparison to Psalm 74, when the Babylonians came in to destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. And we read in the title to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a, a psalm of Asaph. Now to remind you again that as you look at Jeduthun and Asaph and Heman, they were worship leaders during David's time. And so you know that uh, David was uh, around in about 1,000 B.C. So here it is, centuries later, that Asaph and Jeduthun is being mentioned here. And, and we know that He-Man was the brother of Asaph, worshipers under David, as he would uh, begin to make plans for the temple to be built at that time. Worship was a very important part of that. And Asaph and those guys were worship leaders and. And so over the centuries, their descendants and these choirs would be set up with their names. And so that's the psalmist here, uh, as a psalm of Asaph is writing in verse 1, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of trouble I sought the Lord, and my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. So here in Psalm 77, looking at this time of trouble and difficulty, the psalmist is crying out out to God, and, and he says something very important. He says, as I cried out to God, to God with my voice, in verse 1, he gave ear to me. In the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. And what we're going to see and read here in verses 1 through 9 is that there's an expression of trouble, and then in verses 10 through 20, we're going to see an expression of triumph. And here is the psalmist knows that Jerusalem's about ready to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. It's a difficult time. He's troubled, as he says, in the day of trouble. He talks about that my spirit was overwhelmed there in verse 3. The key for you and for me is to understand this, as the psalmist does, that the Lord gives ears to our cries. And that is such good news to me tonight that I know that when I am troubled, whenever the Babylonians surround my life or the circumstances are difficult or whatever it may be that causes me to be overwhelmed, that I can cry out to the Lord and my Christ just don't hit the ceiling, that he cares for me and he hears me and he desires for me to cry out to him. And as he is crying out to the Lord, here he's also, he sought the Lord in verse 2. I sought the Lord, and that's a real key for you and for me. 
And you see, this is the key that we're going to have the psalmist that's going to express in the latter part of this psalm, seeking the Lord, trusting in him, remembering the Lord. And he's beginning to do this. I am troubled, Lord. I am overwhelmed. And I know that you hear me. And and I'm looking to you for comfort as my soul. You know how you're troubled so much that your soul refuses to be comforted. And I think that a lot of you, most of you, you've been through a time in your life, a situation, Maybe it's a loss of a loved one or, or stress at work or uh, maybe health situations where you just you can't find that comfort. You're trying to find it. Others are trying to bring it to you. But we know that it's in the Lord. As Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that you know, brethren, I didn't want you to be ignorant of this, that when we came to you from Asia that we were pressed beyond measure. We were even despaired of life. It was so difficult. But yet he would say that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations. He's the God of mercy. And know that he is the God of comfort that brings true comfort to you and to me in all of our tribulations, not some of them. So when our soul is looking to be comforted and we're overwhelmed, we seek the Lord and we cry out to the Lord. And then there's the pause there in verse 3, and we continue in verse 4. And you hold my eyelids open, and I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night, and I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. And as the psalmist continues here, he, he's trying to remember God's goodness and faithfulness to give him hope in the future. That's one of the things is I find myself getting older. And through the years of journeying with the Lord, that when I find myself in a challenge or a difficulty, that I like to look back and remember the goodness of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord. Lord, you've been faithful to me in the past. You've worked for me in the past. Your promises have been true for me in the past. And I know that you're going to continue to do that, to be faithful, to be working, that you hear me, that you see me. You're not going to leave me or forsake me. And I have confidence in that. So the psalmist, during this time of expressing the trouble, he's uh, trying to search the Lord. He's desiring to cry out to the Lord. And then he asks some questions in verse 7. Will the Lord cast off forever, and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his tender mercy? Shalah, the pause once again. And so he, he asked the Lord some questions because he's questioning himself. Kind of like Habakkuk, the Old Testament prophet, that three chapters. Then in chapter 1, that there is Habakkuk. He's, he's watching. He's in his tower. I'm going to set a watch. And, and in chapter 2, he's wondering, Lord, how can you use the Chaldeans to come against us because they are so wicked? But as we see the psalmist here during that same time that Habakkuk was prophesying, knowing that trouble was going to come from the Chaldeans against Judah and take them away captive and destroy Jerusalem, that we know that the psalmist here asks questions that oftentimes that we can ask when we're troubled. He's asking, you know, in the darkness, that has God rejected me? Will he show favor ever to me again? Has his mercy ceased in my life? Has his promises failed? Has he forgotten to be gracious? And you see, whenever that we're in the darkness, we need to remember that we need to bring the light of God's word 
his promises to that situation. That when we find ourselves in darkness, bring the light of God's word to it. And know what his word says to you and to me, that he promises he'll never leave us or forsake us. Will he show favor to us again is what the psalmist is, is writing. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, would write a letter to the captives because they were wondering just that. Lord, do we have a future? Do we have any hope? We're off in a captivity. And Jeremiah, you write them a letter and you say this. Thus says the Lord, that my thoughts towards you are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I know my thoughts towards you. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil. You see, for every single one of us, that's a message to us. That he is our future and our hope. And as you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me as Jeremiah writes. And I love what Jeremiah writes actually in the, in the book of Lamentations. You have read Lamentations. You think, man, it's a, it's a lament. It, it really is a downer, the book of Lamentations. But here's the thing. As you look at This book, Jeremiah is lamenting because Jerusalem is being destroyed and Judah taken off into captivity. But in chapter 3, as he's talking about uh, the darkness and the difficulties and all that they're going through, he gives words of hope and encouragement. And in chapter 3, he says, Though the Lord's mercies were not consumed because his compassion fails not, they are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness, is what Jeremiah writes In verses 22 and 23 of Lamentations, chapter 3, again, for you who like to jot down notes, you can read it. I'll read it to you as he continues to write, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Though the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed, we're not done. Because great is your faithfulness, Lord. And great is your compassion that fails not. And they are new every morning. I love that verse. And I love that verse especially as I'm going through difficulties and hardships and and confusing times. That in those times and as the days turn into weeks, turn into perhaps months. That I know that your mercies are new every day, Lord. And your compassion fails not. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. He writes later in the chapter, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. So we know that God hasn't rejected us. We know that he is our future and our hope. We know that he hasn't forgotten to be gracious and compassionate to us, and his promises are for us. So bring the light of God's word in those times where you're in the darkness and to stand on those promises and to to really have those promises be worked into your heart. And that's what the psalmist here is doing. And as he does that, all of a sudden in verse 10, and I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of your right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. And I will also meditate on your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. So we see here that the psalmist gets his eyes on the goodness of God and his wonderful deeds. Lord, you're the one that's great. You're the one that has worked. Uh, Lord, you're the one that is good. 
who is so great a God is our God, as he writes here. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Speaking of the sanctuary, it's good for us to be here in this sanctuary so we know his ways, so we can be reminded of the wonderful works of God, the wonderful work of salvation, how he saved us and forgiven us and made us a new creation in Christ, right? We're a new man, a new woman. Everything has become new. We have a new heart, and that's the most marvelous work of all. But also, it's important for us to remember the works of the Lord in our lives. And I think it's good for us to declare those works. And that's one of the things that they were told as the prophets would come to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in their idleness and in their uh, you know, disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. Hey, remember what the Lord has done. He's brought you out of Egypt. He's brought you into the land of promise. He's done such a wonderful work in blessing you as a people. But they didn't remember the works of the Lord. I can't help but think about as you end the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book of faith, isn't it? They had great victory over the Canaanites and went into the land as they crossed the Jordan River. Finally, 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 after 40 years. And they go in and they... Divide up the land, their allotments. And it's a great story. It's a great book to read, a book of victory. But then at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. They're already beginning to, to look at the idols and entertain the idols. You need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. And he says, as for me, my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve God. And then as you go into the book of Judges, it says in chapter 2 that that generation after Joshua, that they didn't remember the Lord or the works of the Lord. They forgot. And you see, it's really important that we remember the Lord, the works of the Lord. That's one of the reasons why we have communion is we're remembering what Jesus did for us in this new covenant that we belong to, a covenant of love, a covenant uh, of, of writing his word on the tablets of our hearts, of grace, as we hold the, the bread, remembering what Jesus did for us and allowing his body to be broken, and in holding the cup, allowing his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. It's important for us to come to the communion table. And as we do that tonight, I pray it wouldn't just be a, a routine or just something we do at the beginning of the month or whatever, but it would be a time of worship, of remembering, Lord, you died for me. I belong to this new covenant, a covenant of love, a covenant of grace, a covenant that speaks of Jesus on the cross who provided salvation and forgiveness for me as he cried out, it is finished. Isn't it wonderful? It is so wonderful that we are saved and forgiven and blessed. And yes, we go through trials and difficulties and loss in this life, but we have a future and a hope of eternal life. And so may we just be at awe and wonder as we come to the communion table once again. You know, when Joshua took the children of Israel across the Jordan River, the Lord said, set up these, these stones. And when your children ask, why did you set up these stones? You can tell them how the Lord was faithful in bringing you out of Egypt into the land of promise. It's important for us to remember the works of the Lord in our lives and what he has done and, and to declare that. And that's what the psalmist is doing. And in verse 16, the power of the Lord 
The waters saw you, O God, and the waters saw you. They were afraid, verse 16. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water, and the sky sent out this, uh, a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So talking about the power of God. There's nothing that is too hard or too difficult for God to work in. There's nothing too hard or too difficult where God can't have victory over. So we need to remember that God is all-powerful. And so the psalmist here, as I said in the first nine verses, as we think about it, it was all about the psalmist. I am overwhelmed. I am troubled. I'm wondering these things. It's I, I, I. But then in verses 10 through 20, it's all about the Lord, and it's you, Lord. Your wonderful works, your deeds, your wonders, your strength, your power. He talks about the Lord, and you see that's a real key for any of us, as we've already learned going through the Psalms, that we go from a sigh to a song, the way to do that, as we sigh and the troubles and the stress and the difficulties. The way to turn it into a song is you go from I to thy. Thy goodness, Lord. You go from I to thy compassion and thy promises and thy power and thy hope that I have in you. And that's how we can go from trouble to triumph, is to get our eyes on him. And that's what the psalmist is doing here in this very difficult time. He's remembering God's deliverance and God's power. He's remembering his deeds. He's remembering his ways and that God is good and faithful. And that's what I pray that we would as we go through the trials and difficulties of life. So Psalm 78 a contemplation of Asaph. Now, in Psalm 78, it's a history psalm. And it's a history of the children of Israel, mostly as they came out of Egypt. It talks about their rebellion, but as they also went into the promised land as well. And what the psalmist is writing about, the importance of teaching God's way and, and, and God's word to our children to pass it along. And don't forget to do that. It would be Paul that would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, when writing about the children of Israel and their wilderness experience, that all these things happened to them as examples, and, and they were written for our admonition, that is, for our instruction. They're written that, that we may learn from those examples. You know, they say that you can learn from mistakes, but it doesn't have to be our own mistakes. And these stories that are written to us here in the Old Testament as we go through it, the stories that we hear and we read over and over again so that we may learn from them, that we may be instructed from them. 
You know, one of the popular things in churches today is to, um, and you get information on this all the time, here's how you can get CCVI, you know, uh, you can get licensed to show movie clips and, and show movie clips and all the action movies, and then, you know, they show a little clip of it and they make a spiritual truth that they can relate to it. And it's, it's very much of a way for, for churches to, you know, kind of get the attention of people. And, and I'm not going to say that's a terrible thing to do. But as I look at God's word, as we look at it, the stories of the Old Testament are illustrations or truths that are given to us in the New Testament. And there's so many stories in the Old Testament that we can learn from. That we can go to God's word and say, here's, you know, so oftentimes you know that, that as we go through the New Testament, perhaps on Sunday morning, and we're reading the promises and the commands and, and the principles that are there, that we can go to the Old Testament and have a story that applies to it. And they're written for us, not just as a history lesson, but spiritual lessons that we can learn from it. And so, as Paul says, they were written to us for our admonition. And we can learn tonight what is written here of the history of Israel. We can learn from mistakes, but it doesn't have to be mistakes that we make. We can take heed to it as we look at this and consider it. So here, as the the psalm, Asaph is going to warn the people of Judah not to make the same mistakes as their fathers did. Know the scriptures. Teach them to your children. He's going to emphasize something very important. So we read in Psalm 78, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come uh, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. We read in verse 5, for he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart up uh, right and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So here the psalmist, as he writes, he, he's concerned about the future generations that will not be taught the things of God. I think that very much is a very much of a concern for us even today. Kind of interesting here as we look at this once again, as the psalmist begins in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings of old. That's a direct quote, actually, when you go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 34. The kingdom parables, as Jesus began to speak in parables in, in chapter 13. And, and as you look at those parables, first of all, in the beginning part, again, I'll read it to you. You can jot it down. But in chapter 13, verse 14, as he began to give the purpose of the parables, he writes, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turns, so that I should heal them. And then later on, as he gives um, again, talking about the parables in verse 35, uh, as 
Jesus, uh, all these things. He spoke the multitudes in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. In verse 35, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So he quotes here from Psalm 78, verse 2. Here's the thing. The parables were a story that gave a spiritual truth, right? That was the purpose of the parables. The parables were to reveal a truth and a story to those who are willing to hear those who are sensitive to the things of God. There's two purposes in the parables, but then Jesus not only talks about does it reveal, but it also conceals to those who don't want to hear, to those whose hearts are hard towards the Lord, those who are so hard they don't want to hear about the Lord. And, and we know he talks about the parable, the seeds being you know, uh, cast on the ground and some by the wayside. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear the word of God as the seed is the word of God in that parable. And there are those that we will talk to that they, you know, you, you hear the word of God. You and I were growing in the word of God. And I had somebody call on Calvary Live the, the other day and they said, I don't understand. I, I give this friend of mine the, the truth of God's word and they're so hard and they mock it and all of this. And I don't understand why they wouldn't receive it. And I think a lot of us have experienced something like that. We want to share with those that we care about and love and friends and coworkers, but they don't want to hear anything about their hearts are so hard. Their ears are closed. You know, their eyes are blinded. And, of course, the Scripture says Satan blinds the eyes of those who are not saved. Those uh, the natural man doesn't have spiritual understanding. Their hearts are hard. And so when we pray for those that we're witnessing to and care about, that we need to pray, Lord, take the blindness away. Open up their eyes. Soften their hearts to receive the word of God. But there are those that I don't want to hear anything. And I think, how would you not want to hear about salvation? You know, about the Lord and, and how he went to the cross for you because he loves you and he rose again and he's your hope. But there are those who don't want to hear that. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. The Word of God is still true. It has everything to do with their heart. It's kind of like if there was a beautiful piece of art that was here, you know, that uh, you, know, you look at and somebody comes up and says, ah, that's ugly. I don't like that. It's not the art. Anything wrong with it is the person, their reaction. It's like if you go to Rocky Mountain National Park, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and you come and you come into Estes Park and majestic mountains, and it's beautiful, isn't it? People come from all over the world to see it. We live an hour away. And somebody who goes into Estes Park and says, oh, that's ugly. It's still the mountains are beautiful, aren't they? The mountains are majestic, but it's the person who sees it that... They don't want to admit. They don't want, you know, their hearts are hard towards it for whatever reason. And there are those with the word of God that are that way. And we need to pray, Lord, soften their hearts. Lord, open their eyes. Take the blindness away. So a lot of times the word of God will reveal the hearts of men. And so here the psalmist here writing about that. Their hearts have gotten hard to where they're not talking to the next generation, their children, about the things of God. And we talked about the importance of that and the priority of that in our Ephesians study. As a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 6. 
And fathers, that you're to raise your children in the admonition and training of the Lord. And so parents, moms and dads, and again, grandma and grandpas, uncles and aunts, whoever you might be, that it is of priority and importance that we pass on those stories of the scripture here. That we talk to them about the things of the Lord. That we be ones that we pray for our kids and not be afraid to do that. Not be passive about that. But say, Lord, help me to raise my children in the ways of the Lord, especially in the day in which we're living in. You know, I had somebody say again to me, I've heard it several times, but somebody said to me, you know, I, I don't want to pass religion on to my kids. I just want them to, to grow up and make their own decision about all that. Uh, have them, you know, decide what they want to believe. And I think, oh my. If that's what you really want to do, then you know what? It's going to be the world that's going to get a hold of them. And the world's going to attract them. And so it is important that we here in this room, that, that we have little ones and small and children under our care and under our roof, that we make sure that we are teaching them and showing them telling them of the Lord, the things of God, and the Word of God. Because if we don't, the world's going to go out and deceive them and cheat them. And there's a lot of voices out there to do that. One of the things I'm going to do, ask for your prayer, is the Refresh Conference uh, that is at Calvary Aurora. Uh, I have the privilege of being able to teach a session on the ministry and the family. And as I pondered it and been praying about it, I can't help but think about in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, there's kind of an interesting story there. Moses, he was called by God to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, you're the one that I chose. You're going to lead two and a half million people out of Egypt into the promised land. You're going to bring them to the wilderness. They're going to receive the law of God, and they're going to become a great nation. And Moses, as he's on his way there, all of a sudden in chapter 4, it tells of this, in a few verses of, all of a sudden the Lord met Moses. And it says that the Lord purposed to kill Moses. Man, the Lord met Moses and body slammed him on the ground, was going to, to kill him. And all of a sudden his wife, Zipporah, she, she gets up, she goes over to Gershom, and that's Moses' son. I like that name, Gershon. It's a nice, strong name. But what she does, she takes a knife out. She circumcises him. And she comes over to Moses as he's pinned to the ground, about ready to be killed by the Lord. The Lord had purpose. The Lord knew he wasn't going to kill Moses. But in that story, as Moses is pinned to the ground, she throws the foreskin on him and says, You're a bloody husband to me. You're the blood of the circumcision. She stomps off. He's not happy. Moses gets up and he goes on his way to Egypt. And a lot of times I get asked, what was that all about? I think there's a very important lesson in that. And Moses, here you are, the great man of God. As called by God to go to Egypt and, and lead all those people out of, of Egypt and into the wilderness to become a nation. 
the miracles that are going to be performed, the law that's going to be given to you. Your name is going to be known in history for all eternity. And as Moses was going to do that, the Lord met him, and I think gives us a very, very important principle and truth in that. And Moses, how are you going to lead a whole nation when you haven't even led your family? And you didn't circumcise your son. They were to be circumcised, the Lord said, in the book of Genesis, chapter 17, or that you'll be put to death. And for so whatever reason, Moses neglected to, to mark his child. And maybe he didn't do it because he thought, it's messy, it's painful, it's... I don't want them to be marked. Just leave it alone. Everything will be okay. But the truth of the matter was is that he wasn't leading his family. And Moses, if you're not going to tell the stories and mark your child, which is to be an outward mark of uh, you know God and you belong to God, if you're not doing that and taking care of your priorities and that is minister to your family, how are you going to be able to minister to all those people? You see, it's a very important thing for us to remember that the priority, men and fathers and husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He doesn't say love the church as Christ loved the church, the ministry. You know what I mean. Love your wife. Now, the ministry is very important whatever God might call you and I to do, but the primary importance is our family and our children, that we tell them the stories, that we're not passive about it, that we don't say, uh, I, I don't want to bring spiritual discipline to them. You know, I don't want to make sure our home is a sanctuary. The things of God is messy. It's painful. The world is different today. Uh, I, I don't want them to be marked because they'll be made fun of in the world or whatever. But that we would be ones that telling a generation to come to the praises of the Lord and raise them in that way that they know the things of God because we have taken the time to do that. It's of primary importance, and you know that. It was Moses later on after that when they brought the children of Israel out. You've heard me say this before, but I think it's worth repeating. That after the children of Israel sinned around that golden calf and he went up on the mountain there, it's in Exodus chapter 32, and he goes up on the mountain, he intercedes for the people, and he says, Yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written and the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But he did said something very important. Now Moses, now Moses, therefore go lead the people to the place which I've spoken to you. None of us will be able to lead anyone, your children, your grandchildren, those at work, your neighbors, those you care about and love. You're not going to be able to lead them if the Lord isn't speaking to you. If he isn't speaking to you. 
Moses, lead the people to the place that I've spoken to you. And if you're not hearing from the Lord, you're not taking in the things of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my law. That it begins with us. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. That if we're not spending time with the Lord ourselves, how are we going to be able to lead our children and our wives and others that are linked to us in our lives? It's very important. So here the psalmist, the children of Israel, when they left Egypt here, we, we know that they saw the mighty works of God, but yet they would continue in their rebellion and their unbelief because they didn't remember the works of the Lord and didn't pass it on to their children. And we know in verse 9, the children of Ephraim being armed with carrying bows and turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders he had shown them. Interesting here. Ephraim is mentioned here, and it was used as a name for Israel, the ten northern tribes, which when you look at their history, they don't have the best history. They were the, the powerful tribe. They were the big tribe. They went to Joshua in Joshua chapter 17 and said, Joshua, we're a mighty people. We need more land. Joshua said, well, if you take up arms, there's the mountains there that the Canaanites are in. Go to the mountains and that's your inheritance. And drive out the Canaanites. There in Judges chapter 8 when Gideon, you know the story of Gideon and his 300 ragtag guys that defeated 135,000 Midianites. But when he initially blew the trumpet, the tribe that didn't come was Ephraim. And after the victory and after the battle and after uh, God's mighty hand that worked in, in driving out the Midianites, Ephraim comes and says, why didn't you call us? I blew the trumpet. You didn't come. Why didn't you come and do battle? On Sunday, we're going to finish the book of Ephesians. And we're going to talk about spiritual battle and taking on the whole armor of God. And I pray that you can come to that because it is a battlefield out there. And we need to put on the whole armor of God. Oh, you might be mighty at work. You might be successful in what you do. But are you fighting the fight in the spirit? Are you putting on the whole armor of God? It was Nehemiah in chapter 4 that he would say to the guys building the wall, they had a trial in one hand and sword in the other, and he said, fight. Fight for your wives. Fight for your children. Fight for your brethren. For the Lord is great and awesome. So fight. Put on the whole armor of God, the good fight of the Spirit. And you fight for your wives, guys. You fight for your children. You fight for your brethren. Because it is a battle out there that's going to get more intense. Put on the whole armor of God, and that's for all of us. To fight the good fight that the Lord has for us. Declaring his works. Being led by him as we're seeking him. And passing that on to our children, to our grandchildren, to others that we have opportunity to disciple, to give truth to, to be a light for. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this time as 
there was so much more that we could cover, but Lord, I thank you for these psalms that again remind us of just knowing you, trusting you, looking to you, declaring your wonderful works, that you are our hope. And Lord, as we now come to the communion table, we remember what Jesus did, the most incredible work of all in the history of mankind. Jesus going to the cross. The work that he did in providing salvation, and forgiveness of sin, and then he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I've, I've died for sinful humanity. And then he was put in a grave and he rose again. So as we take communion, Lord, Pray that we would be at awe and wonder once again. But Lord, as we also pray tonight, I pray if there is anyone listening on live stream or in this building, in the coffee shop, or in this sanctuary that's never surrendered their life to you, that applies to anyone, you here tonight, that you would give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. He is your hope as you realize your need for him, the Savior of the world, that you're a sinner as the rest of us are, and he died for your sins. He went to the cross, allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed because he loves you, and he is the way to heaven. He declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other salvation. There's no other anyone else who died for you and rose from the grave conquering sin and death only Jesus he's the son of God and he loves you and salvation comes by crying out to him and surrendering your life to him admitting that you are a sinner the Bible says repent it means turn directions and come to Jesus who gives the invitation to come come to the living waters come to the bread of life Come to him personally. And you pray right where you are, Jesus, I come to you, a sinner, in need of you, the Savior of the world. Forgive me of my sins. I thank you for dying for me. And I believe you rose from the grave and you're alive. You're speaking to my heart. And I open my heart and I give you my life. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me and for loving me and saving me and help me to live for you and to learn of you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if anybody here by chance prayed that prayer, when we're through with the service, I want you to come up and tell me the decision that you made. But right now, as we prepare our hearts for communion that we would just continue in worship right now just at all, thinking about the wonderful works of Jesus on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, I'll hand out the communion elements and we'll partake of them together.